0: David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Dear listeners, this podcast episode contains sound interference we apologize for any inconvenience this may cause, and hope you still enjoy the talk. The first of the Nevi'im I want to look at tonight, because I made an executive decision. I made an executive decision. I, I was kind of going to do Yechezkel tonight. I was going to do Yechezkel and try and uh, fit in some of the later, the last of the Nevi'im. But I made a realization, oh, I made a realization. I had a realization, and I made a decision, that that's impossible. Uh... This, these talks that I'm giving on a Wednesday night in this particular series, uh, and I'm just being very honest with you, are not a vehicle that can contain Yechezkel. Uh, I barely contain Yirm Yahu, but once you get to Yechezkel, once you get to the Prophet Ezekiel, you will know, those of you who have any familiarity with that book will know that an hour's talk, you just, you're just going to end up blowing your own head off and trying to uh, do that because it's massive. But we will touch upon Yechezkel briefly by way of digression, historical digression, into the background of what I want to talk about tonight. But one of the reasons I also just mentioned Yechezkel is because I come back to this question I asked a minute before I mentioned the book of Yechezkel, which is, what do you think is really going on? And the authenticity of the Nevi'im. You see, Yechezkel is talking about something that we, and I look around this room and I can say it safely, that we can no longer access. And what I mean by that is an exilic consciousness we can no longer access the exilic consciousness of our grandparents. The State of Israel has fundamentally changed the existential position of every Jewish person in the world and you have to be well into your 80s probably, at least, to have some recollection of what that consciousness was because even people who are in their 80s, 90s today When they were a lot younger, even in their time, it was a possibility that a thing like that was being worked towards. But nevertheless, they might be able to access what it was like when we didn't have the state of Israel, and we didn't have a Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel. But for us, and our children, and our grandchildren, uh, God willing, impossible. What it's like to be a Jewish person in the world that has no anchoring in a place. And Yechezkel is the Navi that is the first to address what that feels like and what that means. When Yechezkel, and I'm just going to spend two minutes on Yechezkel, because Yechezkel comes, is, is is prophesying at the time of the destruction. It's a very, very structured book, those of you who are familiar with it, the first half of the book leads up to the destruction, And the second half of the book is basically after it. And Yechezkel is not even in Jerusalem. He's on Nahar Kvar at the beginning of the book. He's on the Kabar River. And the Kabar River is a tributary of the Tigris. He's in Samaria. He's in Mesopotamia. He's in Babylon. (coughs) And obviously, that's really the uh, epilogue of last week's talk. Jeremiah's uh, fut- not futile in the long run but his immediate attempts to try and effect some kind of last-minute reprieve or the uh, dying embers of that spiritual notion of the First Temple and what it was doing in the world uh, ended. The Babylonians came uh, at the end of Zedekiah's reign Uh, He rebelled just one too many times, uh, tried to play the power games that we spoke of one too many times. Uh, The Babylonians came, the Babylonians were the superpower of the day by a long shot. And they came, they conquered everyone, and of course they conquered Judah, and they destroyed Jerusalem, and they destroyed the temple. And that was a massive cataclysm for the Jewish people. That's a serious game changer. The people are then sent into exile. We already had a wave of exile uh, during the time of Yehoiakim when Nebuchadnezzar came the first time and it was in that wave of exiles that took Ezekiel and Daniel and a whole, and basically all of the nobility and the administrative classes to Babylon. And that is why at the destruction which happened ten years later Ezekiel is already in Babylon, but he obviously has tremendous spiritual vision. He has a direct connection with what's happening because God's telling him. God's telling him in the years leading up, he is to prepare the exilic community for that event and he is to give them the inspiration and the teachings going forward. It's a dark book, Ezekiel, but it has some phenomenal moments the opening chapters of that incredible vision of the Divine and the messages inside that vision are that God is now in exile with the Jewish people. They didn't know what they were going to expect, they didn't know what they had to do. This is the first ever time they had experienced exilic consciousness. There's no Jerusalem, there's no land of Israel, there's no kingship, there's no no Jewish state anymore. We don't know what to do. They hadn't invented shuls yet. People didn't know what they were supposed to do. Do we pray? Do we not? Are we Jewish? Are we not? Remember that the word Yehudi meaning a Jewish person is intimately bound up with the nation Yehuda from the country of Yehuda. And now those two things become split. I'm a Yehudi but I'm living in exile. I'm in Babylon. Jeremiah had already written to the communities of Babylon saying get yourselves comfy. You're not coming back in a hurry. But, you will come back 70 years. And it's interesting because we know what 70 years looks. It's 70 years basically now since the Holocaust, or since the Second World War. So we can get our head around that kind of span of time. But to the exiles that had just arrived in Babylon, that seemed like a significant amount of time. And not only that, they couldn't possibly see how any return was going to be affected. Babylonians weren't in the business of allowing Jews back into Jerusalem. They let Gedalia there, if you remember from last week, started a whole thing, but he got assassinated, but they weren't interested in allowing any Jewish control. And so the Jewish people were helpless and powerless, and it was precisely in that situation of powerlessness that Ezekiel has the most phenomenal, revelatory vision of God. This was in Babylon before the destruction. God takes him to actual travel, takes him to Jerusalem. If you're going to read Ezekiel, read chapters 8, 9, and 10. Those phenomenal chapters that deal with the exit of the divine presence from Jerusalem and the coals from the divine chariot being thrown on the city, and the city exploding in flames all of the things that are shown to Ezekiel that is happening and are going to happen. And then Ezekiel has to prepare the community for exilic consciousness. So I'm not going to talk about Ezekiel tonight because it is such a massive book, but its themes reiterate the themes we've been talking about. But the historical background of what I want to talk about tonight, really, I'm going to do the timeline. Here we go. And uh, as I said, we're, we're basically looking uh, in this particular short series, we're looking from 800 to 500. That's six, seven. So this is 700. Maybe the black's a little better. That's seven hundred or minus seven hundred, minus six hundred. So the temple is des- uh, well, the exiles; those those first exiles happen here, but then the temple is destroyed here in minus five eight six. Well, that was supposed to be red, and it was like this cute cross, but it didn't happen. All right. Um, And it was destroyed by the Babylonians. Now, here's our map. Here's our map. And there's the land of Israel. And there's Babylon. (laughs) Babylon was a massive power. And extraordinarily, in minus 538, it was overrun and defeated in a very quick series of military maneuvers and lightning conquests by a neighboring power that then not only conquered Babylon itself, Babylon was the name of the state and Babylon was the name of the city, not only did it conquer Babylon very quickly but of course took over all of its possessions and expanded it. Historians understand really that there's a kind of a seismic shift that happens in historical consciousness and in political frameworks at this time, generally, which obviously we have, have too much time to go into, but really the Babylonians mark the end of the kind of empires, the Assyrians and so on, that had been uh, conquering and ruling up to this point. But the new phase, which is launched by those who conquered the Babylonians, who were the Persians sets about an entirely new era in the way empires were going to be run and governmental systems were going to be run and questions of different autonomy for minorities, but how those minorities are governed in a system of satrapies and provinces. Very, very complex administration. And a whole new type of governance. And that happened in Minus 538. And obviously, if we had time, we could go, those of you who are interested, to look at the conquest of Babylon, because it was astonishing. It happened very, very quickly. The Persian conqueror, of course, was Koresh, Koresh who we know as Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus, who was actually mentioned in the Nevi'im as a, as a kind of a messianic candidate, as Cyrus used his whole army to bank up the uh, dam up an entire river system so that they could get into the water inlets into Babylon. Before the Babylonians knew where they were there, Cyrus's troops were already in the city and were conquering it. And basically, that was the end of Babylon. Babylon did not have really a slow dribble ending. They had a very sudden ending and launches the Persian era. And Cyrus makes a decree that is incredible. That decree is kind of like a first for world history. It's, I am going to allow nations that have been conquered and displaced in the turmoil of the whole Assyrian-Babylonian mess that's gone on for the last hundred years, I'm going to allow nations to go back to their native lands and to rebuild their societies and particularly to reconstruct their religious sites and their sacred sites and the worship of their divine entities, their gods. I'm going to allow nations to do that. And once again... This is not something from the comic books. Not only do we have Cyrus's decree recorded in many places, we have the actual decree in physical form. It's held in the British Museum. It's a cylinder. And on the cylinder is inscribed Cyrus's famous decree. Uh, as it happens, for those of you who are curious about these things, Uh, It would appear, um, from most decipherings, that the Jews are not actually mentioned on this cylinder. Interestingly enough, a number of other nations are. But the facts as recorded by Tanakh and in other places are so consistent that uh, it's not a stretch to imagine that there might have been more than one cylinder or in fact the Jews, for whatever reason, uh, through their own negotiations, took advantage of the decree of Cyrus And they decided as a community that they would support this movement called Zionism and that they would go back to the land of Israel and rebuild Jerusalem and fulfill the promise that Cyrus had given them that he would support a project to rebuild a temple to the God of Israel. And so we come back that is the generation, which we call the generation of Zion, those who returned to Zion, after a break of 70 years. They couldn't believe it! Who would have thought that you would go into exile, and most Nations, that that would ever happen to Your capital has been destroyed. Your country has been ravaged. Your population has been sent off for anyone. No one comes back. B'Shuv Hashem et Shivat Zion, When God returned, the captivity of Zion, Hayinu kecholmim. You're all familiar with those words. It's from Shira Ma'alot. which we say, before Amazon, Shabbat and festivals. We were like dreamers. Couldn't believe it. And I say these words with a small amount of irony. I hope you realise. I say this because what do you think going on? What do you think is really going on? These guys couldn't believe it after 70 years! And we're sitting here in Melbourne and within our own generation the Jewish people have returned to the land of Israel, according to prophetic promise, after nearly two thousand years, and we go. Oh, that's nice. I'll put some money in the blue box. What do you think's going on? Who's doing this? As Yecheskel says. I'm God, I'm doing this and why can't you see this is why I constantly say there's no Jewish education without Hebrew and Jewish history they are the two things that will make you realize what we are doing in the world and Imagine a generation where they had the opportunity to go back to the land of Israel and the nations of the world and the powers of the world were going to allow that to rebuild the Jewish nation in their homeland and not everybody goes back. Imagine a generation like that. Some people say, oh, you know, things are quite comfortable here. My kids are at good schools, I've got a good job, the wife's happy. Like, let's, you know, I'll put some money in the blue box. And that's what that generation was. Only 42,000 or so went back in that first wave. That first wave was led by two extraordinary people. It was led by a figure called, sorry? No, 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 no. We're not at Israel yet. We are not at Israel yet. Correct. Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel ben Shaltiel, who was the grandson of the last king. Well, he was the, he was the grandson of Yehoiachin, of who had been one of the last kings. Zerubbabel and Yehoshua ben Sadak who was the grandson of the last high priest, the last Kohen Gadol. And the two of them led this exile of about 42,360 people back to the land of Israel to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And, you know, they get there and they, as you would imagine, Jewish people do, and they have a community, you know, they, they, would, they need a ceremony. So they're going to have a ceremony, and they're going to go up to the Temple Mount, and they lay a foundation stone, and then they probably have something to eat, and something to drink, they make a kiddish, and they, they write it up, so they can send reports back to Persia, that, you know, they've started to fulfill the decree of Cyrus, because it was a decree, they went there under that decree, and so they had to fulfill that, and so we've laid the foundation stone of the temple. We were starting to rebuild the new temple and they probably made a few committees and you're in charge of this and you're in charge of that and you're on sitting and that will be your role and your turn will be next time and all the rest of it. And then it kind of didn't really go anywhere. It stayed like that for 18 years. And part of there are many, many reasons for why that happened. One of the most dominant reasons that you'll read about when you research this period, which is a remarkable period, and you can see why it relates so acutely to our own generation. They stalled the rebuilding of the temple for several reasons, and the dominant one, according to most accounts, is that there was it was difficult because the local populations were being obstructive. The local populations were a complex matter because the Assyrians and the Babylonians between them had left some very strange like populations and communities living around. Uh, people who over the last course of the century before had developed their own mythologies about who they were but they saw themselves as moderately indigenous and they came to the Jewish community who had the decree of Cyrus hot in their hand, saying we're here to rebuild the temple and they said, we'd like to participate with you in that project. We'd like to build the temple with you. And the Jewish community said, no, thank you. This is for us want to go and speak to the Beth Din about your status. That's one thing, but right now, we are the ones that are doing this. That was a cryptic joke. It come up. And it would be extremely interesting to go into a separate discussion on what the motive and justification and rightness of that particular decision was. The prophets as a whole seemed to think, and certainly the sages after them, seemed to think that that was the right thing to have said. It wasn't a project for them, it was a project for the returnees. The prophet Ezekiel and other spiritual leaders of the Jewish people had made it very clear that the return of Zion and the rebuilding of Zion and Jerusalem was not going to happen and the continuation of Judaism and this entire authentic project called Israel was not going to happen from the people that had remained behind, but it was in fact going to happen from the exilic community that was going to return. Only those who had undergone the experience of powerlessness and exile could be the ones to rebuild the spiritual edifice for the future. This is very, very consistent with the way the prophets were looking at things. And as a result of us saying no, they became obstructionists. They write back to Persia. Meanwhile, the governments in Persia have moved on. Cyrus is dead. You've now got Cambyses running around the place. He's a stickle preoccupied. And also there are internal politics to be managed within the Persian Empire. It's all a bit difficult, so the project becomes stalled. It becomes stalled for other reasons as well. The other reason the other reasons include the fact, and I and I always say this go into some detail because it's sometimes gets Abbreviated in discussions, and it's important to understand. The population, once they laid the foundation stone, they said, Right, well, we'll get to build that at some point, but right now we have very, very acute economic and physical needs. We have to reconstruct this economy. We have to deal with farming. We have to deal with food production, getting that food to people's mouths. We have things we have to do. There are basics. There's no point building a temple when we've got nothing to eat. So they set about trying to reconstruct an economy. And one further reason why they lagged in rebuilding the temple, and I know some of you are sitting there going, oh really? They want to build the temple? Like really? That's where we're at? How is that relevant? And you should know... You should know that there are people that would rebuild the temple tomorrow if they had the opportunity today. But one of the reasons why they didn't, weren't in a hurry to build the temple because it was a little bit embarrassing. The prophets, all of them, certainly the more wildly ecstatic prophets, Yeshayahu and Yechezkel, and others, had described the new temple and had described the rebuilding of Jerusalem in such phenomenal terms that this generation then knew that whatever they built could never match that. So they weren't even sure if that was what they were supposed to do or were they supposed to wait for circumstances whereby suddenly they would have the resources and the power to be able to build the magnificent picture that the prophets had portrayed. And so for all of those reasons, 18 years go by, and it's still nothing more basically than a foundation stone. I've just seen the time. We have to move on. I'm still backgrounding, but we're going to move on. But with all that backgrounding, we're now able to deal with the first Navi I want to talk about very quickly, a Navi that's sometimes overlooked but it has a lot to say about the issues and the angles that I've looked at in this particular series. I'm talking of course, enter stage left, the prophet who is right there at that very moment, which is of course, not yet, not yet. Close, close. You don't know how excited I get when people don't know the answer because it gives me a reason to stand here. No, of course. You know, I'm talking about the prophet, the one, the prophet that we're going to talk about first, and moves right at this moment. In fact, it's one of the shortest books in the whole Tanakh. It's only two chapters. And with the sufficient historical background I've covered now, the entire thing makes total sense. Haggai. No? Who's heard of the Prophet Haggai? Who's heard of it? Who's heard the name? Oh, good. good. <laughs> so I imagine there's this Prophet Haggai, but no one seems to have heard of it. Suddenly, there's this guy in Ushalayim. We're not entirely sure where he came from. But we assume that he must have returned with the exiles from Babylon. Some people say that he was very, very old and he actually even was part of the people that had been exiled to Babylon but that would make him very old by the time he starts his prophecy. But he came with this wave and he's there in Jerusalem and suddenly God is speaking to Haggai and he's saying to him this. The people have said The people are saying the time has not come to build the house of God. But in fact, that is precisely what you must do right now. Haggai's two chapters are an exhaustion to Zerubbabel and Yehoshua. The, well, Zerubbabel had the title Fachat Yehudah, which is like a governor. He was given local governor status by the Persians. They did not renew, renew the monarchy. They did not renew the monarchy. And it tells Rebbevel and Yehoshua that the temple needs to be built. This is a very, very curious thing. Why is it curious? The whole reason we got exiled is because we completely, according to the Prophets, misunderstood and abused the concept of a temple we saw that as our salvation we misplaced our power we misplaced our relationship with god through this nasty combination of on the one hand idol worship and syncretism and on the other hand nationalism together with this belief in territorial integrity over the temple all of that stuff Got us in trouble, we got exiled, now we come back. Now you tell us you have to build a temple. This time it's different, says God through the prophet Haggai. You are coming from a position of powerlessness. I've taken away your power. But now, says Hashem, I am with you. I know that it's not going to be spectacular. Just take a few pieces of wood, take some bricks, whatever you can find, just go up there and build it. The ekaveda, and I will be honoured by it, says God. It's the thought that counts. But I want you to do something. Why do I want you to do something? Because in running away from your spiritual obligations, You have become secular. You are fully concerned simply with physical and economic preoccupations. And you have forgotten that there is a place for spirituality and connection with God, for sacredness in your life. In fact, it should exist at the center of your life but it shouldn't be your full preoccupation. Just go up there and build a small temple, and what you will find in that balance is that everything, including nature, including your productivity, including your farming and your economy, as well as your religious and spiritual life, will all come into balance, and everything will be as it should be. Haggai is a book about... It's a very, very strange question that it poses, because why suddenly do we have to build the temple? But as Haggai also reminds them, this is the reason you came back to Jerusalem. You have an obligation. You have an obligation. And also, don't think for a moment, Zerubbabel, that you are going to start playing power politics like the kings of Judah before you. There's a lot, a lot of historical ambiguity about Zerubbabel and about the Prophet Haggai's attitude towards Zerubbabel. Was Zerubbabel actually contemplating announcing himself as a king and to form some kind of breakaway from the Persians? The Persians did have to spend quite a bit of time controlling independent states. Unfortunately, Zerubbabel did not, in the end, play that game, there was a tremendous promise of Zerubbabel. The prophet told him that God wants to make you his signet ring, meaning that he wants to pluck you, Zerubbabel, and to raise you up, and to make you and this nascent society that you are rebuilding in Zion, the envy of the world. But we don't know what happened to Zerubbabel, ultimately. But there is another prophet who gives us a deeper, a deeper angle on this picture. And just before I speak about that prophet, just on Haggai, uh, the whole temple project had stalled for 18 years. And how long do you think it took once actually the prophet comes, the prophet Haggai comes, exhorts the people, exhorts Zerubbabel, exhorts Yehoshua get the thing going start doing it, let's start the project how long do you think it took once they started? three weeks which is also a kind of a lesson in life about procrastination and when they had completed it Hashem says to them through the prophet Haggai you know, Chazak well done, Yusharkoach, that's what I wanted. I wanted just a society with balance, not one that ignores spiritual concerns, but you have to get your religious consciousness right. It has to be a balance if you are to fulfill what you have to do. I don't know as a generation whether we are ready yet to build the better HaMikdash. I'm not entirely sure we fully understand what that means. Certainly not when so many of us are still living in exile. And I know that many of us have been to Israel many times, and we've even lived there, and I mean, I'm an Israeli citizen, I'm sure there are others in the room that are, and yet uh, we still have much to do in the Gola. It's not an exilic consciousness, but it's a consciousness of being in the Gola. Sometimes we just have to stop and actually think about what we're talking about. What is it to be Jewish in the world? It does not mean a cultural club. And I've spoken to people that their entire Jewishness is defined from the fact that their grandparents were in the Holocaust. So that's why I'm Jewish. Or that's the extent of my identity. Or that's how far it goes back for me. But the Jewish people are something much, 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 much greater in the world. And so to rebuild the temple in Yerushalayim is a massive generational decision. Read the Prophet Haggai. They don't take it easily. But there is another Navi there. There is another Navi, a younger contemporary of Haggai. And he says, quite the time, he's quite young who is also, with Haggai, arousing the people to rebuild the temple and rebuild the society, but he has a different angle and an angle that for us is even more explicit in relation to the things we want to talk about, or that I'm talking about. And that, of course, is the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah is a Kohen, some of Rahia, some of Edo, Now Haggai is only two chapters, Zechariah is a bit longer, it's 14 chapters, but it's readable. You could read the whole thing in half an hour, but I don't recommend it. Basically because, and I'm just going to say this as a prelude, because some of you are sitting here and you're familiar with the book of Zechariah, and you're going to say, oh, what's he going to say about this? So I'll say it, and then we'll go and we'll analyze what it is that he's really talking about. Because the carrier is kind of divided into two halves. you're familiar with this? Put up your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Mm. The first eight chapters are wild, but they make sense. The next six chapters, nine to fourteen, are, without a doubt, the most ecstatic, indecipherable vision in the whole of Tanakh. Primarily because it deals with a future that for most of Jewish history has not been seen, but in our generation it starts to come into focus. Chapters 9 to 14 of the book of Zechariah speak about the full-blown vision of the restored Israel. The kind of the one that we are looking at developing today. And we'll come back to that in a moment. I'm going to talk about the first eight because they are extremely important for us to understand. If anything, Zechariah is—if a Haggai is talking about rebuilding the temple, then Zechariah is talking about rebuilding the leadership, rebuilding the direction of the society, and he starts by kind of historical overview. Look, God says. I was very, very angry with your parents and your grandparents. You know, a couple of generations before, and before that. I sent them prophet after prophet, and they just didn't listen. They didn't listen to my spirit. They didn't listen to my voice. We've looked at this in previous weeks. All I was saying to them, says Zacharias, says God through the prophet Zachariah, all I was saying to them is what David Solomon's been saying on Wednesday nights. Kindness, justice, authentic behavior. And they didn't listen. And so that's why it all happened, this whole exile, 70 years. And it was really horrible. Millions died. Jerusalem was destroyed, the country was destroyed, the society was destroyed, your entire kingdom was destroyed. You were all taken to Babylon. And now, less than a century later, you're back. And I did all that because I want to build the right kind of society. I want the Jewish people to be the conduit I need them to be for this idea in the world. Not just the idea of a universal God, but the idea of ethical behavior as the key to everlastingness. You do the the whole point of the game of history is to survive. It's not to conquer. It's not to be victorious. It's to be a conduit for the divine to make the world and humanity a better place. And we're going to do this again and again, until we get it right. Zechariah then has these incredible visions. Some of you are familiar with that. If you look at chapters 3, chapters 4, all these amazing visions. His visions of horses here and there, and he has visions of flying women, and like Chagall paintings and all sorts of things. So we can't discuss all of the visions, but there's one that is really, really important. That's probably the most famous of Zechariah's visions that he sees, and he doesn't even understand what he's talking about. He doesn't understand what he's seeing. Some things they say, are, oh, you know, like like God's last week. God says to Jeremiah, shows him an almond branch, and he goes, "What's that?" And Jeremiah goes, "Ah, oh, it's an almond branch. And almonds blossom quickly, which means that you're going to act quickly, God." <gasps> very good're me tick but here in Zechariah, zahari is going I have no idea what I'm looking at so he sees a vision and you'll have to you'll have to please uh, excuse my drawing because really anybody anybody draws better than I do certainly my seven-year-old daughter does but Basically, he sees a vision, and he sees a menorah. Yeah? Everybody know this vision? Put up your hand if you know this vision. Yes, you know the vision, you know the vision. He sees a menorah. And next to the menorah, on the right and left, are two olive trees. And they've got olives on them. And the olives are dripping oil directly into the menorah. It's not that, you know, you're collecting the oil, then you're taking the oil, and you're pouring the thing, and you're having the light. They're going directly into the menorah from the olive tree, and the menorah is a light. And has to say, what is this? What's going on here? Of course, these two olive trees are the two leaders of this generation. Remember in the first temple, there was this tripartite system between the king and the high priest and the prophet. Here, the in position of the king and the high priest, these are the two leaders of the generation and having the right spirit, it is fueling, directly, the religious symbol, the spiritual symbol of the newly reconstituted religious aspect of the society. There is an entire new philosophy that is going to emerge as if the prophetic tradition of Israel hasn't done enough already in universalizing God, it now gives us possibly its most profound message, and one that even two and a half thousand years later, we are still struggling to digest. Lov'chayil v'lov'koach ki im baruchi amar Hashem. Not through valour, not through might, not through power, but through my spirit, says God. Nothing else matters. There is no other value other than my spirit, says God, that makes things happen or not. This was a very, very, very famous discussion in our own generation. And the really authentic spiritual leaders of the Jewish world, were warning the state of Israel after the Six-Day War, when generals were strutting around talking about how clever they were, and were reminding them, Amar Hashem Not strength, not power, only by the Spirit of God. God is the only thing that makes things happen, and true leadership... Reflects that. True leadership is a manifestation of powerlessness. How do we have that power? How do things happen to the Jewish people? They don't happen to the Jewish people simply because we value power. That that is the spiritual discourse of other nations, and it's the spiritual discourse of idol worship. If you're going to read two chapters of Zechariah, I'm not talking about nine to fourteen. If you want to totally, you know, text him LSD and read that, but if you just want to read two, the most, apart from chapter four, probably of Zechariah, read chapter seven and eight, because in sev- chapters seven and eight, he gives across this idea even more forcefully. Because a group of people go to him, you know, he's a priest, he's a prophet, he's a dude. He's someone that, uh, you know, you can ask a question to. And they go to him and they say, Oh, now that we've rebuilt the temple, yep, this is a classic question. This is a classic question. This is the question they're going to ask, actually. If they rebuild the temple tomorrow, and I hope they do. It's not that I don't want them to. I wish the generation were ready, but I hope they rebuild it today, tonight. But you know they're going to ask the same question when they do, the same question they went to ask Zachariah. What's the question that Jews are going to ask when they rebuild the temple? It's classic. Did you say how much? (laughs) Yeah, let's imagine that question's already been dealt with, right? It's built, we've paid for it on the credit card, it's all done, right? What's the first question? You know what Jews are going to do. They're going to come and they're going to say this. Now that the temple's built, you know all the fast days, right? The 17th of Tammuz, the 9th of Av, the 3rd of Tishrei, and the 10th of Tevet. Those fast days that all have to do with the destruction of the first temple. The arrival of Nebuchadnezzar's army from Babylon for the siege. The breaching of the walls of Jerusalem. The destruction of the temple. The assassination of Gedalia. All those terrible events, each one of which is represented in a fast day. Do we still have to fast? They come to Zechariah with this question. And Zechariah spends a good two chapters giving them a history lesson. In the course of which, he answers their question in no uncertain terms when you were fasting, first of all, what were you doing? You were fasting. Were you fasting for me? You are fasting for yourselves. You're the ones that eat and drink, says God. So you're fasting for me. I don't need you to spend a fast day doing that. What I would really want you to do is acts of kindness and justice and truth. That's what I want you to do. I'm going to pretend you didn't ask the question, says God, because it's not on the right track yet. As it happens, the answer is no. You don't fast. Those days are turned into Yomtifs according to Zechariah. And yet in all of that, Zachariah is attempting to remind the people, in the words of God, to remind the people, going again and again and again, don't be like your ancestors. Listen to what I'm saying to you. Don't lie awake at night, scheming about how horrible so-and-so is and how you're going to screw them over in the morning and... Uh, look after the underprivileged and dispossessed in your society. Be nice to each other, and most importantly, you know, emet, truth. Zechariah describes the city of Jerusalem as ir haemet, the city of truth, and the Temple Mount as har haKodesh, the holy mount. So holiness is the pinnacle. Doesn't exist in isolation. It is the pinnacle of truth truth and authenticity. Shiftu mishpat shalom, says Zechariah. Judge the judgment of peace. That's what it is. I mean, we zoom forward 600 years after this and we still didn't know that lesson. We went into exile for another 2,000 years. And when we come back, and now we're in the state of Israel, then yes, There is a justice system. There's probably a justice system that any society in the ancient world would be proud to call a justice system. And it is nominally just. But let's not kid ourselves. Let's not kid ourselves. We've had a past prime minister, a past president, soldiers all sitting in jail. Corruption is rife. And every generation thinks, oh, it's only little corruption. It's not big corruption like our ancestors did. This is just little corruption. But we have to be very careful. Do you think that God returns the Jewish people to the land of Israel after 2,000 years? Do you really think that happens? And God says, I've returned them now. I'm just going to take a break. or come back in a little while and have a look and see what's happening. No! The divine is observing what is happening in the land of Israel and what the Jewish people are doing there all the time. There's no escape from that radar, but we're not being asked to be subservient and slave-like. We're asked to create a clean, ethical society. One that, as Zachariah tells you, will be so amazing that Gentiles around the world when they see a Jewish person, will run up to them and grab them and say, I want to come with you. That doesn't what happened today. Not yet. <laughs> and you know, in chapter 9, Zechariah, as I said, chapter 9, he's already started. He doesn't, he doesn't climb up, he already starts. And the first thing he's going to just one of the first things he describes, which is in chapter nine, the beginning of these incredible ecstatic visions. And listen to this. And listen to this, because this is really the pinnacle. He describes the leader of this idealized generation that will emerge the king in fact the Messiah and the Messiah of this generation says Zechariah is not someone who comes with power. They're not someone who comes as a great military conqueror or that they come with truckloads of cash or someone who comes with a huge long set of achievements. It's a poor person, a simple poor powerless person riding on a donkey. A simple poor power, poor person. Poor, but powerful with the Spirit of God. What is the Spirit? What is ki that Zachari is talking about? What is it? Nothing happens but with my Spirit. What is my Spirit? It is the Spirit of Nevoit. Of prophecy. prophecy, as I said at the beginning, is not simply about our oh, Nostradamus-like. I'm going to predict the future. Talking about the future with great spiritual insight is the yardstick of authenticity of nivouah, of prophecy. That's how we know these guys were right. That's how we know these guys were right. They predicted it. Read Zachariah. I mean, read those chapters I talked to you about. Read chapters 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. You'll see it. It's describing now. The prophets saw this thousands of years ago. So when they tell us, when they tell us that the essence of Judaism, the essence of spiritual and religious life is truth and justice and kindness, they may know what they're saying because those values have outlasted anything else. If the Jewish people in the land of Israel believe that the acquisition of power and the selling of arms around the world and belligerence is the key to outlasting history then the Navim would tell them they are mistaken. But if they use the tremendous opportunities of the generation to build a society based on justice, social justice and truth and authenticity, no one in our understanding is ever going to be perfect. But let's try even even aim for less than perfect. And of course, as you would know, Malachi is not... is not the is uh, 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 Zahari is not the end of the prophecy Malachi I'm not going to go into Malachi but I just got to talk about Malachi for a minute before we end Because Malachi is the last of the Neviim Malachi comes later Malachi comes There's a lot of different opinions about when Malachi arrives but some of the opinions put him even halfway through the minus 400s His, Much later. Some people identify Malachi with Ezra. always amazes me, that opinion. Always amazes me. Because it's the rabbis in the Talmud who said, you know what, Malachi might be Ezra. And what's amazing about that is if some Chazer pressing up the chorus had said that, they would have gone, oh, you can't say Malachi is Ezra. But the rabbis said it, so it's okay. Could be that Malachi is Ezra. And he comes several decades later, and Malachi is winding up the whole of the prophetic tradition. We're moving into a different phase of history now. This whole concept, this whole institution called prophecy, that uttered the words of the divine directly to kings, and directly to rulers, and directly to the people, from God, that's over. That was part of the first temple project. Yes, it was still around at the beginning of the Second Temple, but we are moving into a different world now. And indeed, the Persian Empire and the subsequent events that followed, because they were followed by the Greeks, the Hellenists, who were followed, ultimately, the massive power that rose was the Romans, and then already we're onto a different road of history. Everything's now coming from the West, no longer from the East. We've got different phases of history going on. Nivoire is winding up. For now, says Malachi. But it will come back. Just as we told you, says Malachi, and he speaks in the name of all the prophets. He goes over the whole thing. And he says, just as we told you that you will come back, and not only will you come back to build this one, it's going to happen again. They're aware of that. So will Nivoir return. So will prophecy return. And when prophecy returns, then we will have great leaders, because all of these prophets are bunched around great leaders. They produce societies that, (laughs) for the most part, and this is the difficult part about Yao, but most of the prophets have tremendous effect on the societies around them, as well as the future. Prophecy will come back, and I'll tell you who's coming back, says Malachi. I'll tell you who's coming back, and this, of course, is the source of that whole tradition that people have been carrying around for so long. I'll tell you who's coming back. The one prophet that never really went away. The one prophet that never really went away. The one prophet that's been around all this time. You all know who I'm talking about. He comes to Yusayda comes to Eliyahu? a bris, Elijah, Elijah the prophet. He lachem et says Malachi in no uncertain terms. I'm sending you Elijah the prophet. He's gonna come back. And what's he gonna do? Is he driving a tank? Has he got some social media platform? does one thing, says Malachi. And that's when you realize, you, like sometimes when you read it and you go, that's it, that's the big stunning conclusion of the whole Nevoic project. And then you read it again and you look at it again and you think about what it means and you realize what a brilliant summary it is of what Eliyahu Hanavi is going to do when he comes back. The generation in which is restored Nivuah prophecy El Yahav is going to come and Avot al Banim and Banim al He's going to reconcile parents with children, and the heart of children with their parents. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Because many, many times have I spoken on those two psukim and each time I have to reach inside and say, what actually does that imply? What actually does that mean? And I think it means ultimately the concept of generational reconciliation is the concept of the reconciliation of past and future the idea that this project of the Jewish people and all of the things that we've gone through and all of the things that we will go through are really part of one long story. A story of the transmission of an idea. And the idea, as the Nuvim tell us, is that God can be revealed in the world. The great battle of the Jewish people as was predicted by many spiritual sages who saw the end of days, ultimately will be a battle against uh, rational skepticism and cynicism about the concept of God in the world generally. Because unless you actually humbly acknowledge that the world has a creator and that the creator demands ethical behavior, you might be able to create some very admirable systems of humanistic values and ethics, but all it will take will be one Hitler or one Stalin to come along and exploit those. And ultimately, the Jewish people, and this is really where I started, even when we, we move beyond that battle, the Jewish people really will always struggle with themselves and their own inclination as a nation to, in a sense, avoid the one thing that the prophets and God have been telling us all this time until we actually do it. That is, we go to the land of Israel, we build a society that does not depend on our glorification of the military or economy or anything else. It is a society which is in which the whole world, and Zechariah tells it to you in the most explicit terms. He tells you, Jerusalem will be the spiritual capital of the world. All the na- Hezkel tells you, Zachariah tells you, all the nations will come there. They will come there for their conflict resolution. They will come there to express thanks to the divine creator. They will come there on Sukkot, to celebrate the festival of the Gentiles, if you like. And we'll love it. But if we want to participate in that process, then the first thing we have to do is we have to read the Nevi'im. Now, I'm not saying, therefore, that the whole story of Judaism finishes with the Nevi'im. Obviously, we have several other layers of Jewish spiritual development that happened in the two and a half thousand years since here. And no less a phenomenal development is that of the Tanaitic ethics of the Mishnah and the way that the Torah is applied in life using the dignity of the human being as its fundamental underlying principle. But none of that is possible without the Nevi'im without understanding that ruchi, my spirit, says Hashem, and the voice of God that is asked to be being heard right throughout Jewish history. And the question is, our generation, with all of its privileges, are we doing that? Are we listening to what the Nevi'im have been saying? So I urge you to, once again, read the Nevi'im, read those chapters of Zechariah, read Haggai, and to realize that... Once again, it is not about the acquisition of power. It is about the relinquishment of power and the trust and the faith that the God of Israel, who made a covenant with our ancestors, that their descendants would be the ones that would reveal the true spirit of God in the world, uh, will continue uh, eternally. So thank you for listening to all of that. You for listening. To find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings, and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.